What's up, guys? This is the final episode of Make and Break, the DNAD podcast in conjunction with WPP. My name is Naina, and in this series, we have covered some key topics with industry leaders and New Blood Academy participants. In episode one, we spoke about authenticity. Episode two, it was about how to get the most out of your first job. Episode three was about culture and relevance. Episode four was the art of thinking and episode five was all about deadlines and how to get the most out of them. Some amazing tips and amazing advice for people wanting to get into the creative industry. So today in our final episode, we're going to be talking about the art of storytelling. We're going to focus on storytelling, what makes a good story, whether that's with brands, TV, film and how you should go about approaching this process. So the aim of Make and Break is to help more people kickstart their creative career by sharing the learnings of the New Blood Academy beyond the walls of the Academy. So a little bit of background, the New Blood Academy with WPP, it's a two-week accelerator programme and it's developed to set up young creators with all the skills they need to get a job in the industry. So in essence, it aims to develop the skills and the mindset that's needed for the creative industry, but sometimes which education struggles to teach. To date, it has propelled the careers of 250 young people and these guys have gone on to secure jobs across the WPP network and into roles at BBC, Google, Amazon and Warner Brothers. I'm joined in the room today by Andrew who's a scriptwriter and has worked on some incredible shows like Chewing Gum. Hi Andrew. Hi, hello. Hi, how's it going? It's good, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Not at all. I'm also joined by our New Blood Academy participant Nodi. Hello, hey. how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited. I'm excited. And you <laughs> took place in the New Blood Academy this year? This year. So I just it's just finished. finished. Amazing. Couple of weeks ago. Amazing. So we've put together some, some topics and themes to go through storytelling. So take it away. Right, Andrew. Hey. I think when you first came and did the talk, it was... I think that was my favourite talk. I think that's why I was so excited oh, to do now. this. And I, and I remember like going on your website shortly after and I remember like two things I saw. One of them was um, someone had described you as the Fresh Prince of Structure, <laughs> which you said, which was I incredible. That. that was Daniel Kaluuya, <laughs> who's in his Oscar-nominated, Oscar-winning film now. Daniel Kaluuya said that? Yeah. Amazing. I'm, oh... What a guy. And then somebody else had said, like, having Andrew on board is like having a cheat mode for writing television, which I thought was wow. fantastic. I'm like, oh, man, I'll get to do this. OK, cool. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So storytelling, if we start off with what do you think makes a good story or a great story? Oh, I mean, finding it compelling, I guess. I mean, just on a very basic level, if you want to keep watching it, if you're interested in it, if you're fascinated by it. What fascinates you gets to be very complicated and interesting some stories are good at kind of walking you through worlds like one of the things harry potter is particularly good at is no matter what door you open there's more stuff behind it and you kind of want to see everything um there are some stories that are just compelling for reasons of let's say mystery it's what hooked people into lost for example um but in fact and i've been re-watching the leftovers recently and the leftovers is incredible at using a very particular kind of storytelling, which is where you go, what the hell is going on? And then you get iterative answers all the way through it of like, that's what was going on there. Oh, but actually there's this other weird thing that you might want to worry about as well. Sometimes we just find characters really compelling. You just want to spend time hanging out with groups of characters. A lot of sitcom kind of functions that way. Stories are really useful, but um, so much of what is a, what Friends was at the time and what um, something like Girls has done and... Uh, that you kind of want to hang out with these people, that you tune in for half an hour to kind of... And that comes from things like familiarity, like the characters become so easily understood, so readily understood. So some people that you just go, oh, you know what? 
don't tell them about that thing because if you tell them about that thing they're going to kick off and it's just not worth the conversation and it's like well that's predicting character behavior like they're friends of yours like you know them intimately and there's something about that that's really interesting but you have to like them enough to hang around with them even if you like them in a negative even if it's like house where you know you don't like him you wouldn't want to spend too much time with him but my god he's fascinating to spend time with it was interesting because you like you said friends but so like 20 years ago i'd say there was a trend of sort of having a pilot and then introducing the whole story in that pilot mm-hmm. so in the first like 10 minutes of friends you get that Chandler is the funny one and ross is the sad one and you know the whole story immediately and then you go into it whereas i feel like now there is that need of you want some element of mystery or you want to find out what's happening to these characters as the show happens rather than you get a preface and then I mean I don't think it's I don't think that's time I think well I think there's there is a slight change in the in the confidence of television now to be willing to be a mystery but it's not like they there weren't mysteries before it's not like um you know cracker Jimmy McGovern's cracker it played beautiful mysteries but and in fact it wasn't a who done it was a why done it it was about whether you're why exactly the characters had done the thing that they'd done. We already knew who did it at the start of the story. But there is a there is a I guess a confidence that that telly has to do more than recurring format, than do what sitcom does, than things like procedural shows like CSI will do, which is look, every week we're gonna find a body and we're gonna investigate it. And we'll investigate the thing and we'll do some clever thing. And it won't be who you think it is at the middle point, because otherwise what the hell are we gonna do for the next half an hour? But those shows still exist. There's loads of that telly still being made and sitcoms are still being made. Those um, those kind of flexed muscles, there's just more types of telly now. It's not that the telly is, I would say, particularly different. Okay, all right. Uh, so let's see, you script edit. You take a script and then you make it essentially better. <laughs> uh, how do you kind of use your notes to sort of make a journey cohesive like how do you get people along this journey and it has to make sense and it has to, also has to be enticing at the same time well i mean i isn't it terrible i don't worry too much about the audience that's probably a good thing it makes the story better i don't know i mean i think panda too much then i don't know well that's true yeah i mean get this pandering but pandering's a bad word for i mean all, all that really means is I'm very concerned about what the audience think. And to be fair, they're the ones paying for this stuff. Mm-hmm. So you probably should worry about them a bit. And I don't know. I think I think the natural thing is, and the reason I'm relatively competent as a script editor is I'm already quite allergic to predictable storytelling and leaps that don't make sense, that lose an audience where you go, look, I know you need that scene in there, but right now I don't care about anything that's happening in it. So you've got to find me a way to... to to be fascinated rather than confused. Um, my my worry, my thing as a script editor has always been, and you'll have heard me say this before, it's to get to the writer to the best version of the thing they're already trying to write. And the thing they're trying to write is fascinating, is compelling, is interesting, is something you don't want to turn away from. So that's, you would hope between the two of us, would sort of accidentally end up <laughs> doing that. And in the meantime, I've got to get the story working, I've got to get the characters working. So I don't know if there's a if there's a specific thing I apply. That's really so. interesting because um, as a creative, you kind of get the same advice. So say when mm. I do a brief for advertising and you kind of worry too much about, oh, is it right for the brand? Is it right for the client? Will they actually sell it? Will, yeah. it, will it work? And then you get told, like, make the thing as creative, as great as you can. Then worry about your, you know, the, the other stuff. 
And that really helps as well because then you have the thing you really want to create and then apply all the restrictions to it rather than you don't push it enough straight away. Right. That's quite like interesting that it also applies to script writing. I mean, I do, mm. I do think your fascination carries over. If you love a thing, if you've done, mm. you know what, I am so confident. Like your confidence comes across and people can spot the difference between faked confidence and real mm. confidence mm. to a certain degree, he said, talking to people who were <laughs> looking at advertising. Um, <laughs> but there, there is definitely a thing when you come in the room and you go, I mean, I think something like this versus, look, no, 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 but we, <laughs> I've really got this. I was up till four in the morning, but I know this is good. I'm, and and the good ideas do sell themselves. Good good mm. persuasive idea, even if it's not for the channel it's for, for the brief that it's for, yeah. for the client that it's for. People can at least sit back and go, "All right, look, we can't do that mm -hmm. because that's aiming far too closely at the lion and tiger market, mm -hmm. and we're really not into those at the moment. We're very much about house cats." Mm -hmm. But it's a really good idea, nonetheless. They know you're good, even if they don't think the brief is right yet, mm -hmm. the the pitch is right yet. That's, um, that's like how we kind of work as well. So if it doesn't work for this, for the line and um, whatnot, change the brand to house cats, make it a cat food thing. <laughs> and that always works. Like, don't throw away your ideas, just change who it's for. Well, that's the thing. Having good, having ideas, number one, there's there's no limit on the number of ideas you can have. You don't, you don't have your idea and stop. You keep mm. generating and generating and generating. But beyond that, Nothing goes to waste. Nothing is required of you that you, if this this blind alley that you went down, none of those jokes, those laughs, those story ideas, those character ideas have to sit there forever and never be used again and go untouched. You shove them all. God knows. I mean, British comedy is nothing but. We, we came up with a really great joke, didn't fit. We'll use yeah. it somewhere. Mm. There, there's so many British comedy writers are, and I'm sure American comedy, are squirreling away all the good gags they come up with that didn't quite fit this one time. Speaking of comedy, like how do you, because jokes are subjective and mm -hmm. different types of shows have different types of humour. But as a script editor, how do you kind of, I don't know, mould your own humour to fit that like genre of it's, comedy? Isn't this terrible? I'm going to say I don't worry about it. Mm. Again, I don't know. I should be worrying about a lot more <laughs> things than I am. Oh, my God. No, I mean, bottom line, if I've been hired to work on a script, it's because somebody thinks this this person, these people, this writing process is good mm -hmm. that they've got something and that sometimes I mean you work with everybody you work with people who are coming from sketch comedy people who've done umpteen sitcoms before people who are coming from stage from theatre people who are coming from um, stand-up in particular there's a lot of uh, stand-ups you know going into trying to get a sitcom to work and that's where I'm particularly useful because the differences between stand-up and sitcom are enormous mm. but commissioners think they're kind of the same mm -hmm. thing which is that you go out there and you be funny at people and it's it's such a different discipline that they inevitably hit roadblocks and they inevitably need help and thank god because that's why i've got a job <laughs> um but uh, certainly if you if you've got a brilliant stand-up with a brilliant tone like if 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 joe brand's looking to do a sitcom again that's great. I'm not going to worry about whether that's going to be funny. That's the last thing. And the, the tone of that will be the tone of a Joe Brand sitcom. It will it will match kind of who she is. And that's where when you talk about getting people to the best version of the thing they're already trying to write, knowing who they are and what they're trying to write is really useful. Mm -hmm. So being at least a bit familiar with what they're trying to do um, and making it your job in part to go, oh, OK, OK, so we need to be, you know, we need to be this kind of funny or we can be this dark and daring or you want to be this contrasting with your tones or... Mm. Um. 
So what do you think the future of comedy holds for British TV? Because I remember you mentioning that comedy doesn't get that much funding anymore. It's all about drama. It's all about sort of... I mean, comedy never got loads of money put behind it, but it looked like a lot more because well, there were fewer channels and, you know... But, you know, I was, a friend of mine the other day was on Twitter talking about French and Saunders where they used to do their film parodies and they would do Aliens and Kathy Burke would be in Aliens. And French and Saunders and Kathy Burke in Aliens is a perfect joke already. You, you almost don't need to write it. They can just go and busk it on the set. But it was all shot on film for a sketch show. It was all shot on film and beautifully production designed and lit to within an inch of its life to look exactly like James Cameron had been in for the day. <laughs> And their parodies always used to look like that. And then somewhere along the way, the parodies started being shot on video because video is quicker and cheaper and whatever. And fewer sets got built. And can we go out to this place that has a place that looks a bit like that location in the film instead of building the set? Sitcom, back in the day, studio audience sitcom used to be the cheapest way to make a half hour of television because they already had the cameras, they already had the buildings, they already had on staff costume and production design and, and everybody else which meant you could just use the resources you already had. The BBC could just go shove these people into a room, get somebody clever to write something good, and, and off we go. Now, that's the most expensive way to make television. It's way easier to get three people to grab a camera and go off to a flat somewhere without a studio audience, without bringing people in. So that's that's kind of what's changed. It's, it's that studio audience is now the most expensive, so instead you do cheap... And when it's comedy, for some reason, it doesn't get funded like drama. It isn't funded like half of a a, a one-hour slot for drama. Um, and it breaks my heart. And I think it's because people think laughs are cheap, that, that it's mostly dialogue. or But there's a real thing where people forget that how how much context makes a joke work. Like, sometimes you need your parody to look huge. It can't... There's a joke to be done in, look at this. I mean, imagine if this looked like the actual film. But sometimes it's ten times funny if it does look like the actual film as opposed to a bunch of amateurs pretending that they're doing the film. Do you um, think the rise of sort of internet comedy kind of led to that? Because YouTube sketch comedy is a massive thing. Uh, like, Oh, it is. It like, is. And it's, oh, man, there's so much good funny stuff. Like any, mm -hmm. anything funny, you you cannot go a day without stumbling across mm -hmm. a good laugh that, that somebody utterly unqualified and unpaid has come up with. Yeah. Um, but no, it's not the fault of the internet at all. It's the, that was already happening. Mm -hmm. that, that, that decline was already going on. But like you said, it's so much easier for a couple of kids to sort of film it and do a much better job of it, I'm sure, literally without the production. And well, they're able the to do, you know, and, and one of the best things about YouTube and, and, and owned producing like that, self-made stuff, is people are learning how to use more than just dialogue. It used to be that you were encouraged to go out and write scripts, that you would sit at home and type things and send them in and hope somebody would put them on. And now you can skip all of that. You don't even have to write it down if you don't want. If the two of you can memorise it when you're doing it, that you know, that's absolutely fine. But more importantly, we're seeing so much comedy, so much content where people are so familiar with what the camera can do and so familiar what a cut can do, what a cut means. So all these other techniques that uh, an older gener of writer, generation of writers have kind of had to get to grips with slowly while annoyed in the, in the edit that their show doesn't work for some reason, that wasn't their fault that the script was good and now blah, 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 blah. <laughs> All these, all these people have got hold of just a phone and a quick bit of editing kit on the phone, and they're away. And the, you get brilliant things. Like I, I used to love what, what people were doing with Vines, where they would just go, <laughs> well, I haven't got a cast. I'll be the other cast member. I'll just put a hat on. 
and you don't have any trouble reading that. Nobody watches that and goes, wait a second, is that the same character twice? Like, there's no confusion. Mm. The, the, everything is about clarity, and comedy in particular is about clarity. So much of it is about... You don't laugh if you're confused, if you're bewildered. It's like in-jokes going past on Twitter where you go, I have no idea what they're talking about. Now, look, I can either track that back through the 15 tweets and see where this began, or I can get on with my day. You don't laugh if you're uncertain, on uncertain ground, if you don't understand the situation. It's why farce works at its best, and, and that's true for everything, and it's absolutely true for online content and quickie content like that. It's interesting you said about Vine because, like, as as millennial as this sounds, I I always thought Vine is one of like the purest form of co com comedic art because mm -hmm. if you can get a story across in six minutes uh, <laughs> on an iPhone and it gets like fifty million plays or whatever, and people actually find it funny, that's really impressive yeah. to get like a narrative down in that quick. I mean, that's the thing. You can tell a story. I get, I get, I do get frustrated with. Oh, we kind of need these these twelve pages at the beginning before we can start before the show can really hit. It stride and get funny um because there's always a way to shorten it there's always a way to get to the point quicker you you i read so many scripts where you're finally sort of getting to grips with a character on page 20 and, oh God, we're, we're, i mean 20 pages most american sitcoms are 20 minutes long you're done the show's over by that point what is the biggest difference between a story that works and one that doesn't oh i mean again you want to say things like engagement and interest. But the truth is, this also doesn't work for you, but works for somebody else. You know, there are people who... who... One of my favourite movies is The Fountain, and people hate that movie. Some people hate that movie. Like, if you don't like it, you really don't like it. And I don't know. what What is that? And it's because it's talking about stuff that really connects with me and absolutely doesn't connect with somebody else. You can't account for that. You can't... You can't... Of course, you can try and make your thing as accessible as possible. Mm -hmm. But at some point, it's no longer saying anything because it doesn't, you know, you do, it, all of a sudden it doesn't have politics or it doesn't have any daring because that kind of daring would put off grandma or it's not family friendly enough or whatever. And it's and there's nothing wrong with this. Every bit as much creativity goes into mainstream art as non-mainstream art. I think that's a good point because you, you mentioned that don't, yeah, because in a creative industry, we sometimes as students get told, oh, make it accessible to everybody. But I found that as well, that it loses the point of it. Like, right. I remember doing the DNA debrief that I did that, that won the pencil. It was for Mexican women who are domestic workers specifically. <laughs> and I remember I kept going back and forth to my teachers. They're just like, make it about men and women. I'm like, no, but the point is <laughs> for, for women. Like, make it, make it about everybody in the world. I'm like, no, but the... I wanted it to be out for this person specifically. Yeah, yeah. If I had made that, it would have lost everything that was good about it. And I think a lot of young people struggle with that because they'll make something that they're passionate about and then it gets pushed back because it's not generalizable to everybody and it right. often doesn't need to. I think what you said is important that, yeah, I think if it has a point to make, mm -hmm. then make that point and don't worry about... I think that's good. And I, I do think as well there is a misunderstanding that content that features something is about that thing mm -hmm. or that it's intended for a particular audience yeah. i didn't look michaela cole is the voice in everything we should we should establish by the way although i am a writer i wasn't the writer of chewing gum yeah, that no, required a, a breathtaking genius and michaela cole is that breathtaking genius and i was lucky to work on that and it came out incredibly well but it's I didn't approach that any differently than detect Detectorists on BBC4 or the BBC1 sitcoms that I've had involvement in or whatever. 
you take the thing as it is. You let it be what it needs to be. And of course, there are other people who are going to worry about target markets and audiences. And is this BBC One enough or is this Channel Four enough or whatever? It's not my, that's not me to worry about. You already commissioned it. You already thought it was pretty close to being by that point. Um, nobody, I don't think, if you put time into watching chewing gum and god that's an easy thing to spend to spend your time doing i don't think anyone watches it and says well i mean i don't understand where any of this is is coming from i don't know what anything about you know it's a really clear right at, in episode one she there's that the joke where she prays she's praying to the wall and we reveal that there's two posters and it's jesus and beyonce and you go oh i get where her life is it's somewhere <laughs> between those two points that's incredibly in terms of clarifying who a character is fast by the way that's just that's gangbusters and as soon as you put that in there i know who she is and i know what her deal is so i know that she's flitting somewhere between sexual exploration and pop culture and modernity and and also a religious upbringing and blah 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 i don't know that those jokes only work if you're of the same ethnicity as that main character if you've, you've come from that world god knows i'm as pathetically middle class and very very white <laughs> but i i never struggled with comprehension of anything in that show and that's the thing is if you're if you're making stuff for for people again clarity is your friend particularly for comedy clarity is your friend and why wouldn't you want people to understand where you're coming from there is that difference because the jokes in chewing gum are written and like it's made by michaela cole who's a, a black woman and yeah. it's funnier when it comes from the background if, if you're a white writer writing black jokes it loses all credibility also it's not funny it um, doesn't it yeah. doesn't actually work and that's why Chewing Gum and even, um, what's the other one, Asian Provocateur by Ramesh, oh, right. um, Rang, I want to say Ranganathan. Um, <laughs> what he did, it was so refreshing because we don't really see that in British TV now. Like Fresh Off the Bow is an American sitcom mm -hmm. that kind of deals with this first generation immigrant family coming over and it's their experience. And it's from their point of view. And that's why the jokes are funny yeah. because you get it whereas it's not like a, a white character either laughing at it or they're portrayed as a side character and I think that's why I think chewing gum holds so oh, much impact it owns those jokes mm -hmm. it's their it's it's they're her jokes to tell yeah, for a start exactly. but also there's definitely a thing particularly with comedy of I've kind of heard that joke already there is no version of I just threw up a little bit in my mouth that is funny anymore there's no <laughs> There's nothing left in that gag whatsoever. Did I just say that out loud is another one. There is a whole series of rhythms and things that that reach kind of a critical mass. And one day you hadn't noticed they were already in 50 shows, but then they hit the 51st show and you go, I think I've heard this joke already. Well, the one thing we know for sure with any kind of diversity is people haven't heard those jokes mm -hmm. as often. It's in, it's incredibly straightforward, but things like I did I did a thread on Twitter about this not so long ago. Actually, the reason Black Panther lands for Christ's sake is you would you would have thought that movie was going to be about the empowerment of a black superhero, and that's you know brilliant and fine. But actually, they already kind of did that in Civil War. He wasn't a main character, and blah blah blah. They said, "Oh no, can we just skip that and say the entire country is a superhero? It has a secret identity that it doesn't tell the world about, and everyone there is awesome." It just it was it was something that a, a a white commissioner would never have come up with. I really think we should get a black superhero. Is about as far as my brain goes. And it takes a black director and black screenwriters to go. 
yeah, I could think we can take it further than that, quicker than this. Also, it's normalizing it and not token. Like, usually it, it, it's like a tokenism thing yes. where you, you throw in the, oh, it's the main superhero is black and that's yes. about it. Whereas both Black Panther and Chewing Gum, they're not, it's not about, a, it is about a black experience, but it's not so focusing on that. No. They're just seen as, an, it's just a normal superhero movie if you take the racial element out of it. But that is the point. Mm-hmm. Chewing Gum, usually black minority, minority ethnic people are shown as, poor or troubled or criminal whereas chewing gum just shows a awkward quirky black woman just stumbling through life and it's just that normalizing ethnicities that is so refreshing and the fact that you said that you don't even take account of this is a race show or whatever yeah. and you just you know i mean when i when i come on to chewing gum michaela was, was already really clear about how colourful that world should be, how vibrant, how it wasn't supposed to be, God, isn't it hard to be working class and living in London? Oh, it was supposed to be, this place was a playground for her. It's how it felt growing up, was alive and full of, full of, full of stuff. And I don't bring any of that. That's not me. That's not the script editor. But I come on and go, well, we can make that story work with this and that. And you can go, oh, if you want to talk about that, here's an avenue where that joke and that idea, that character you came up with, if we put those two things together and you just kind of help that process along. But this is what I mean about listening to that voice rather than saying, I already know what this show is supposed to be. Right. Um, but no, comedy in particular, comedy massively benefits from diversity. Black Panther is more exciting precisely because of who's in it and how it's how it's put together. But you go and look at You, Me, Her, which is on Netflix at the moment, and that's a, a, a sitcom about a thruple. It's a romcom. It's as white as it can be. But at least the, the idea that you've got a, a, a straight husband and two gay wives in a relationship together... There are jokes there that you haven't seen done before. Conversations. There's um, I'm trying to remember the the, the sitcom now, and I can't remember the name of it. But it was a um, it was about lesbian characters. Oh God, this is embarrassing. But it had a sequence where somebody's come comes into the bar, and I just told my my family that I'm gay, and they queue up whether or not to put the sad song on the jukebox or the happy song on the this jukebox. Is, this is um, fresh, oh, fresh was, off the boat. It was yeah. fresh off the it boat. Was fresh off the boat. God, I thought, <laughs> I thought, cause you'd said it. I thought, well, it can't be that I've fallen over myself. <laughs> and that's, it's the same thing. It's just like, well, there's a joke. I mean, mm-hmm. it's no different from, you know, Rachel running through the door in friends mm-hmm. and saying, I've had a breakup and Monica saying, I'll get the ice cream. Except it is. <laughs> it's really interesting that you said about friends as well, because yeah, the you, me, and her, mm-hmm. the two, the lesbian couple and the straight man, and that the jokes are played from that perspective. So it's funny and it makes sense. Whereas friends is the same thing. It's a lesbian couple and Ross, oh. but the jokes are coming from Ross's direction, and yeah. it just ruins the whole thing. And it's just not funny anymore. And it just kind of looks. The problem. I mean, look, you someone can, else. Expense. There's a thing where you can't hold things completely to task because of the time they were made but the flip side of that is nobody didn't know that they weren't putting the lesbian couple front and center in any Mm -hmm. show ever nobody didn't know that they were using the term lesbian for titillation because there's a joke to be had in that and god no you know when i i grew up those are the jokes that Mm -hmm. you do and you you eventually realize they're wrong and how quickly you twig to that um the better you are but it's really hard to hold Friends to that standard, but from my point of view, Friends is an incredibly well-constructed sitcom, mm-hmm. um, and it's mostly consistently funny and brilliant and well-characterised and all the other things. Um, so I won't I won't beat it with a stick too hard, but there's no question that it's it's written that anyone who isn't white and straight is an outsider. 
people really don't like sequels yeah. that come back 10 years and then reboots of Spider-Man. I always really enjoyed it and they, they get, mm-hmm. people get really angry about it, especially about like the new Ghostbusters. Like, oh. why touch it? Like, well, you don't know if it's going to be good or not before you've seen it. You know what? But, my favourite movie of all time is The Fly, is the, re- is the Jeff Goldblum version of The Fly. And it's a remake. And... Th- there are ways to approach things. One of the problems with sequels, one of the reasons sequels are difficult is because those characters were born to go through one journey, created that this was going to be the most interesting day of their lives. Die Hard is about a guy whose marriage is on the rocks at the same time as terrorists take over a building. There is no day in his life except with sort of fakeness that's going to be as interesting. The sequel is the terrorists take over a different building, but his marriage is okay now. Well, that's not more interesting. (laughs) It's just enough to get another film out of him. And, you know, fair enough. I quite like Die Hard too. It's fine. But the trick with good sequels, one of the things that Marvel figured out is if the characters stay the same pretty much, but the world keeps changing. So you get to see how they approach different worlds. So, what? okay, what happens if you throw Thor down to Earth? Well, that does something interesting, but you can't do Thor doesn't know his way around Earth every single movie. So, actually, it's way more interesting to take him to a weird planet where he has to be a gladiator and all of a sudden that's interesting again he's still Thor he hasn't gone through a significantly different character arc in that third film and then in his second film Captain America gets moved from World War II to the present day and he gets moved from the present day to ah but what if the people you were working for you can't trust them because it turns out they're actually the evil organization oh hell the world changes around him and it means that he can keep going that's how Weirdly, episodic television works. It's how Doctor Who works, how Sherlock Holmes works. It's how those detective stories all function. It's how anything episodic functions. It's eventually you go, you know what, maybe maybe we'll kind of lock them down and see how they react to different stimuli. It's like a, like a little scientific test. Whereas for the most part, sequels that piss you off <laughs> are the ones where uh, they needed to go from not being able to do this thing to being able to do this thing. And then what's the sequel? They're able to do this thing still. That's that's not an arc anymore. And that you were told from the previous movie that these movies have a, an arc to them, that this, the character's journey is important. If you slightly strip out that character's journey and make something else important instead, or you make the journey more iterative, you do Peter Parker and you say, look, no more being bitten by a spider and taking him from as the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man is, taking him from a guy who simply can't stand up for himself at school to a guy who can stand up for himself and other people. Or then in the Andrew Garfield movies, a guy who was already standing up for himself in high school was cool and mysterious and dowdy to someone who's still cool and mysterious and cool and hasn't really changed very much and is now more arrogant, I guess, more cocky. And this new Spider-Man, they've stripped that out. They've said, no, 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 he's already Spider-Man. He's really awkward about it, but he keeps trying. And he's still that guy at the end of the movie. He's not substantially altered. But what has changed is Tony Stark's opinion of him has altered. The world's opinion of Spider-Man has altered. There are other changes going on. You are not required, whatever the books say, you are not required to put characters through arcs. That is not the only way to tell a story. The reason the fly is good. I'm sorry, I'm off on one again. Oh, I know. The reason that the reason the remake of the fly is good is the original fly is a mystery story. It spends half the movie going, this woman killed her husband in an industrial press, specifically crushing his head and his arm. Why would she ever do that? She loved him more than anything. She won't tell anybody the reasons and the the, the family being weird about a fly in the house. And bit by bit by bit, they uncover what was going on there. It's told in flashback and you start to see it play out 
that's not really a body horror story. That's not a my husband has become a different person kind of story. It's a it's a mystery first and foremost. The Cronenberg movie is what if two people were in love and one of them aged and died, which is what happens when people are in love for a long period of time. And he just accelerates. He makes a metaphor out of it. It's glorious. It's a totally different idea, but it just says, but, you know, with teleportation and a fly. The same core little thing gets you two totally different different movies. And that's the best way to approach a remake. It's not to say this idea, but, you know, for now, that's okay. And that gets you the modern Ghostbusters, which is all right. It's not great. It's not terrible. It's certainly not worth all the anger that's gone on about it. Um but the really interesting thing is to say, what if you did Ghostbusters as a horror movie? Or what if you did Ghostbusters as a really balls-out comedy instead of a, um, uh, you know, quite clever scientific but for PG because, you know, it's got to go on the breakfast cereal kind of a movie. There's there's other approaches. There's nothing wrong with taking a new idea and reprocessing it. That's all anything is. We're, we're By nature, we're... What's that documentary series? Everything is a remix. That's absolutely true. People should Google that because it's an amazing documentary. Ideas get repackaged and moved around in Swift. It's all Quentin Tarantino is doing. No, they're all technically original properties. They're all based on tropes and ideas and subverting them and inverting them and gluing things together that aren't usually glued together. All right. I've got two more questions. What are some of your favourite projects that you've worked on? Oh, blimey. I mean, you have different you have different favourites for different reasons. I was so thrilled to work on Red Dwarf because I grew up on Red Dwarf. Like that was that was my one of my core fandoms as a kid. Um, so to get the chance to do that and to get and I love getting the phone calls when they occasionally happen, where where Doug Naylor will go, I've got an idea for an episode and this is how it goes, and pitch it you down the phone. By the way, the phone pitch, if you can pitch a story, a comedy story, down the phone, in the pub, the anecdote test, as I forever call it, yeah. and you can make people laugh and you can keep them interested and engaged the whole time, you're on to a winner. If you end up saying, and then, and then they go, and then we do a scene with, and then you're boring the arse off of people. Tell it like it's happened. Tell it like it's fascinating. If you can't do that, you haven't written a good enough story yet. Anyway, so Doug does that. Graham Linehan does that when we do, um, we've done, you know, IT crowds and Count Arthurs and stuff and those are great. I'm desperately proud of of Chewing Gum, what little I had to do with that, but that's, you know, Detectorists I'm really pleased with, actually. I was, Mackenzie Crook's amazing, but in particular... He turned up with a finale for that series and we, we built the whole of the final season to build that finale without particularly looking like we were trying to make a finale happen. And in some ways, I think it's it's maybe the best finish. I mean, certainly any sitcom that I've ever been involved with has had, but I think it's one of the top five you know endings to sitcoms in the history of television. And that's his idea, not mine. But the way we built to it was, I hope, really elegant and precise Um it's really hard to do it, and then they find a huge amount of money and not have it feel like, and it solved all their problems. And actually, we told a story where their problems were were related to money, but couldn't have been won or solved by the finding. Um, that that when it came, it was a grace note. It was a a bit of poetry to finish on, rather than anyway. So we solved all their problems by conveniently locating something at just the right time. It's a it was a needle to thread that finish, and I think I think it came out really great. Do you have shows that you kind of wish you worked on throughout your career? Oh man! Chance to. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I, 
pathetic though it is, I would like to do Doctor Who, but yeah. I only I only got into Doctor <laughs> Who fandom fandom. I'm not really I'm not part of fandom. I just like the show a lot. But whatever that is, and then I talk about it a lot. But I'd I'd still like to take a crack at that. But no, I mean I'd love to have done that. I like I mean I like science fiction anyway. I I I ended up doing comedy because that's where honestly that's where British TV writing struggles for stories that are working. Um, people who go into drama mostly go into drama to be storytellers and you know do emotional storytelling and character stuff, but to to tell a good tale. People don't go into sitcom to tell a good tale first. They mostly go into it to do jokes and characters and explore worlds. And actually, that means that there is they've had less practice and they have, you know, a lesser knack. And that means that I have a job. Um, So, no, I'd like to do a bit more drama stuff. I'd like to get a bit more into into that. I think there's particularly genre things that would that would be fun. That would be particularly groovy. Do you kind of have? I was going to ask you this when you did the talk, mm. um, the, as a as a finishing off question. What would you recommend people to watch that maybe I heard not, not the most popular stuff, oh. maybe something that I should watch? What should you watch? Yeah. You know what? Um, I mean, horses for courses, different things for different people, and all of the rest of it. But go and watch good first episodes of things because that teaches you how to get started without getting stuck on starting. So the first episode of The West Wing is incredible. Um, it mythologizes the president so that by the time he walks in the room, it's this enormous thing. But it's a it's a it's an episode of TV where the stories are already going. It doesn't say, look, let us introduce you to... It doesn't have a main character who's meeting everyone for the first time so you can introduce their names because introductions are the least interesting way to meet somebody. Sometimes you have to do that kind of stuff. But it's it's way better to just see them functioning as themselves. So you've got Josh worrying about being fired. You've got Sam, who's got his own whole load of personal and complex problems. You've got Leo, who's just trying to hold everything together. You've got CJ dealing with depression. You go, oh, I know what all of these people are. I know what their jobs are. I know what they do. And I know what their opinion on their job is. And it's brisk and it's quick and it's marvellous. The Friends pilot is really good. It says, look, this show is basically already built. It's just missing one element. And Rachel runs in in a wedding dress and the show's off to the races. But Monica is doing a dating storyline that they could have done at any point in the series. That's a normal episode of the show. It just says, "Let's. well, this is how we'll get to know Monica, by taking her through the kind of story she would have in a regular episode of the show. Good first episodes are good. And, you know, just, just good, nice, bloody hell storytelling. I'm, I'm desperately fond of the leftovers at the moment and one of the reasons i'm fond of it is because as someone who didn't get on with the lost because i thought it kind of fetishized is fetishized mystery over character so when you would do a flashback in lost to hey you know that singer who's on heroin let's flash back flashback and see what his past was and it turns out his past was he used to be in a band and started taking heroin <laughs> Shocker. There's there's 20 minutes of episode devoted to a thing I already knew because I'm, <laughs> I I need two minutes in a room with that guy. I don't need the rest of that to give me who he is. One of the things The Leftovers is doing is it plays similar things with flashbacks and mystery, but it, it low-keys the mystery much more. And it says, you know what the thing about mystery is? It's like... It's like dealing with God. Like if a thing happens that you don't understand, is it because you're not standing far enough back and don't know why it happened and does that should you automatically ascribe that to a deity or should you ascribe that to intent that somebody did it it finds a way to do the lost mystery stuff but to say no the show's actually about this as opposed to we're just not telling you yet and the difference between those two things is key and 
the leftovers does this amazing thing of sticking the landing. It does it for three seasons. It finishes when the story is over. And it absolutely nails the way of not doing answers, but doing resolutions. Um, and just because that's a quick, easy watch, because you can watch three seasons and be done. Um, and what's the other one? Oh, Jimmy McGovern. Go and, re go and watch anything Jimmy McGovern wrote. Um, I mean, I grew up on Cracker, and Cracker was amazing, just as a a thing talking about how people think and how they function and why they do the things they do. Because Jimmy's, if nothing else, he understands people and his writing understands people. But things like um, Accused, which is just an anthology show of people who are on trial for things and you flash back and you show how they got there, are really great stories of, oh, I get this, this guy's got this and then some money's left in his cab and the choice he makes after that and the choice he makes after that and the trouble it gets him into... And it twists and it turns, but it's always heart. It's always heartfelt. You always go, oh no, 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 not that. And oh god, yes, brilliant. Mm. You're connected to it the whole time. And it's that thing about context, just like comedy. As soon as he gains something or loses something, you know what that does to the situation, what that does to the world, and it knocks on. Um, beautiful storytelling. I think um, what you said about flashbacks being important. I remember, like the first couple of seasons of Orange Is the New Black, did mm. a really good job of that because the, yes. the context, the, it gave so much context. It wasn't just supporting what we already knew; it made you understand the characters even better. Absolutely, if it deepens them and richens them, you know that's that. I mean, that's what you're going for. You want you don't want them to feel inert. You also want those stories to feel compelling. If it's you know, then my brother turned up and he started offering me some heroin, and I said no, and it's like. Yeah, but in two scenes' time, you're going to say yes because I know where this goes. <laughs> That's very different from, oh, actually, wait a second, I don't know what she's in prison for. And then you find out and you go, oh, God, no. I, and somebody you weren't on the side of, you're now on the side of, or vice versa, somebody who you really thought you knew and liked and trusted. And now you're like, oh, man, I, I'm not sure I want to be around this character anymore, which is... I think what Orange did was so good because they first sold the show as Piper being the protagonist, this mm. white lady who's going through this troubling time. But what they did was when they get got the green light, they switched it and they kind of made every single character be on the same level. And yeah. really, it wasn't about her anymore. Like the whole show yeah. completely changed. And really, now I haven't watched the last season, but she's not really the main focus. It's no, absolutely, no, bit, bit by bit. But also, she was she was a character created to go through an arc. Mm -hmm. She was to, supposed to go through you and your cozy middle-class white life welcome to prison you're not going to cope and eventually either she has to die get out of prison or get used to being in prison and that's the of course that's the way it inevitably went well there's no stories there anymore there's no arc there anymore the interesting thing now is putting characters together in odd combinations and putting them together with schemes to do and there was no reason it has to be her once you've once you've opened the door and said no no don't worry middle class white audience I know it's about prisons but honestly you'll have a connection to this and then two minutes later you go oh I know everybody here this is my new group of friends to hang out with it's weird but I like it well now you can go and follow anybody in those stories it reminds me of um, how wrestling narratives work. You know mm -hmm. how WWE, they 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 oh, make yeah. a narrative and all they do is switch out rosters and it's all about that. By the end of their show, I'm like, this kind of reminds me of that because right. it's not really going anywhere. It's just you see a new character, you get their backstory and... Wow, and yeah. hence glow, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Piper, the John Cena. Andrew, you, uh, you touched on it briefly earlier when you said, go away and watch the first episode of lots of series. Oh, I yeah. like that. I like that. Um, we've been asking everyone to give our listeners some tasks oh, yes. that they can go away and put into action. I guess this would be for aspiring writers, yep. storytellers, um, something they can do that I guess you wish you had that sort of advice when you were mm -hmm. starting out. 
oh, I mean, get into storytelling and very particularly go and practice storytelling. This is the task, the task I would give everybody and that I would give younger me if he would bother to listen <laughs> is go and write a story that fits in a tweet. Then fit, write another one that fits in a tweet. Then write another one that fits in a tweet. Then go and write a story that fits across 30 seconds. That, okay. Then do another one that fits across 30 seconds. Then do a half page one and make it compelling. Don't do a setup. Don't do wind up. Don't do that thing of, and then we realised what this world was all along. Do a story about a character who's going after a thing or who wants a thing. Or do a murder. Can you do a murder mystery in one tweet? Go on, see if you can figure that out. Mm -hmm. Get into the anecdote test. Start doing the thing where you go, I'm going to tell this story out loud stop writing down every little nuance and detail and go, no, 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 but you have to have heard that line that particular way. Go and get it out of your system and work up to longer and longer stories. Eventually you will be able to do the entire two hour movie that you've got in your head as a pitch. And you'll be much better at pitching it because you got used to that slowly and iteratively. So what I mean about mm. practice, just forget about all the little details. You'll practice those too. That all needs to come. You need to do all of that as well. But, Give me a character that, in one line, I just totally get who they yeah. are. Give me the, give me a character like that. Give me a situation that I realise is a dilemma because you put that thing next to that thing. Yeah. Um, it's the, you know, it's the the guy in the uh, vital medical facility something who sneezes. And you go, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Wait. Like, there's tension in that straight away. And it's, yeah. it's, it's joining little ideas together to make bigger ideas. But, yeah. Practice at doing it really short, mm. really short, and just get longer and longer and longer. Do five minutes and go and make loads of five minute shorts. Get your damn phone out and just shoot stuff. Because yeah. I went to film school where I, I had to book in to use a camera and book in to use an edit suite. And by yeah. the way, linear editing when I was at college, <laughs> yeah, that's how long ago. Yeah. Now, all of the things that I went to film school for are on your damn phone. It's brilliant. Mm. You can do stuff, as we found out with, with Vines and whatever, you can be in your own thing. You can put two hats on and tell the story as two different characters if that's how you need to do it. Those guys were all shooting their own thing themselves from two different angles with holding it in the selfie position. Get more and more ambitious, but practice the stories. Yeah. Don't practice. Of course, you've got to get better at filmmaking technique and capturing audio and all the other things, but get better at telling stories until people cannot turn away when you start telling them, because that's when your stuff will get really, really good. Lovely. I love that. Um, Nodi, just quickly, uh, you finished the New Blood Academy. Yeah. Um, talk to me a bit about that. How did you find the two weeks? So I went into it not knowing much of what it was mm -hmm. to begin with. So I had kind of had no expectations. Before I uh, started, I had just lost my copywriting partner. Right. So I was in quite a tricky place because I was like, okay, I don't know what's going to happen after this. I'll just do this two weeks and see what comes of it. But yeah. it came at such a great time because it opened my eyes to sort of, there's, there's so much more to do in the ad industry rather than just do ads for toothpaste or whatever. And I mm -hmm. really didn't want to do that. I just got told that this is what you're studying. Here's a degree in corporate creativity and you just go and make a billion ads for pot products and I always had a had a comment of like I don't want to become this massive cog in like the wheel of capitalism like mm -hmm. it just didn't sit right with me but I liked doing it so that two weeks kind of showed how much more I can do mm -hmm. rather than just sit in an agency and get the brief and get the workout and that was really helpful because I don't think I could have gotten that out of anywhere else 
on top of that, I met a copywriter there. Oh, okay. So I have a new partner oh, amazing. from New Blood. So yeah, shout out to Amy. But oh. <laughs> that was the best part of it because I kind of went around the whole two weeks like, if, if you know anybody who'd like to work together, yeah. um, let me know. But also it was good because we both kind of have similar ideas about what we want to do and we want to make stuff that are important to us, like you said, like... Mm. Um, right now we're working on something about defense archi- architecture okay. uh, and that's not to do with advertising but it's yeah. creative and it's that's what we kind of want to do and so now we're doing it and I think New Blood kind of helped us give that push rather than oh no we should really think about this ad for like yeah. I don't know innocent smoothies or not just for them on, <laughs> yeah. you know it, it, it just makes you work outside of like three print billboard TV that's dull I, mm. I think that's dull and I didn't think I had the ch- I, I would have the chance to do anything else but kind of now I'm like, no, there's so much I can do and I am able to do it. So why not even try? That's fantastic. And that's great that you met your yeah. uh, copywriting partner yeah. through the course. That's that's brilliant. Um, both of you, thank you so much for this episode. Um, it's been us. really, really, really insightful. Uh, that was the final episode of Make and Break, uh, D&AD New Blood podcast with WPP. Uh, across the series, we've gained so much valuable experience, stories and advice from some key figures within the creative world. So take these on, take action, believe in yourself, chase after your dream job. And um, Thanks to everyone involved, every industry leader who shared their stories and advice, all the participants who took place in the New Blood Academy, everyone at DNAD. All six episodes are up, so go check them out all in full and enjoy. Enjoy. <laughs>